Boris and I are in the same profession. We communicate on behalf of refugees, and I have had a lot of hate um, directed towards me, but nothing like the attacks that Boris faced online, attacks that were so, so frightening that he had to leave the country, and yet he refused to let the haters stop him. Danger comes in many forms for my colleagues who work in the service of refugees. Sometimes the threat can be bombs or shelling in a faraway land. But sometimes you find yourself in danger where you least expect it, at home. There were others who were saying, no, we're coming to kill you, we're, uh, we're organizing, you will not find safe, uh, a safe place in this country. There were others that just wishful thinking, uh, you will get cancer and die tomorrow, uh, your family is cursed, we will find you, we will... Uh, make you disappear, um, that uh, I would be soon uh, having acid thrown in my face. Yeah. My colleague Boris Cheshirkov worked for UNHCR as a spokesperson in his native Bulgaria from 2013 to 2015 during Europe's refugee crisis, when thousands of refugees were arriving at the border. It was an extremely tense time. Countries throughout Europe seemed at a loss at how to cope with the flow of desperate people. Anti-refugee feeling was running high across the region. In Bulgaria, an asylum seeker was shot dead at the border. But when Boris spoke out against the violence, he himself became the target of a virulent online hate campaign. The threats were so severe, he had to leave his country. I'm Melissa Fleming. This is Awake at Night. We started to see more people coming through uh, as the, the war in Syria broke out. Quite simply, more Syrian families started to come to the country. In the summer and autumn of 2013, we had 10,000 people come in a matter of weeks. How did that affect your work? It completely changed my life. I, I remember very, very vividly, uh, I was on vacation at the Black Sea. It was late August, and I received a phone call from the Bulgarian news agency. Uh, they asked me, can you confirm that uh, 500 people have just arrived at the land border between Turkey and Bulgaria? And they had, in fact, uh, 500 people, most of whom were Syrian families, had just come through in a specific area. We, we got in a, in a car, we traveled to the border facility and, and what we saw was shocking because uh, we had a group of people in a field in a fenced area in front of a uh, small facility from maybe the 50s without water without food nursing babies without toiletries without any sort of support structure the next so the system was completely overwhelmed. Right? It, it was overwhelmed in a day. Mm. 
And then the next day we had 300 more come through. By the end of the week, it was a couple of thousand. Within the months of September and October, 10,000 people had come through and had completely overwhelmed the system. And the Bulgarian state was unprepared. People couldn't be housed anywhere, so they were thrown into these abandoned uh, military barracks that weren't converted at all. So uh, they were just locked in behind fences in something that had been abandoned years, if not decades ago, without running water, without electricity, with, uh, in the first days, only uh, the Red Cross dropping off bags of one bottle of water, a can of beans, and, and, and some tuna, tuna fish. That was all the people got for, for days on end. And it was horrific. The first rains were coming in. Uh, they were living in muddied fields. Then the military provided military-style tents, which were uh, fit for the summer, but not for the coming winter. And, uh, you know, it was extraordinary. And that meant that as uh, I was working with, with the media and communications, I started to, to do daily statements responding to queries to dozens of media, which I had never done before. So this is probably when your name started getting out and you started to become re a recognized public figure in Bulgaria? Yes. The backlash was extraordinary, publicly um, and politically. People were saying, no, we can't host these people. Um, they're going to change the nature of our society. Um, they're going to overrun us. And That drove UNHCR to engage in the debate, um, to be more visible. And that meant that I was the one that started to appear in front of cameras, that started to go to morning programs, and that became my daily reality. I mean, you were, uh, you were a Bulgarian citizen, but you went on television as the voice of, of UNHCR, um, you know, defending refugee rights, the refugee dignity. Um, how did that feel? I thought that everybody was completely unreasonable, that, that they were probably out of their minds. How could they react in, in the way that they were? It took me a long while to process, and, and I think I'm, I'm still trying to grasp why, why people react uh, negatively to the idea of receiving refugees. But uh, I, was, I was surprised more than anything, and I thought that it was common sense. People are fleeing war. They're coming to our country. We need to help them. It's black and white. You, 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 there can't be two opinions. You, you have to help those that are coming in. So it made no sense that others would want to stop them at the border, even with the use of force, or that a fence would be built. It made absolutely no sense to me. And because in, in Bulgaria, civil society to this day is not very strong, UNHCR was, in a way, the only pro-refugee voice. Everyone else, regardless of creed or political persuasion, was against refugees. This became particularly acute in 2015, a couple of years later, when even more uh, refugees from Syria, from Iraq, uh, from Afghanistan, came through Greece, um, came through Turkey, to Bulgaria. There was an incident that would really affect you. Can you describe that in October 2015? I got a call from Agency France Press, the correspondent in Sofia, in the middle of the night, 
the phone woke me. It was maybe two, two thirty in the morning, and uh, and she asked me, "Can you confirm uh, the reports that are coming out in the media?" I had no idea what was coming out. I had gone to sleep, so I said, "Well, uh, let let me check what it is, and I'll come back to you immediately." So I started to to open up the news, and it was there. For the first time in the current crisis, a refugee attempting to find shelter in Europe has been shot and killed. Uh, the border guard kills Afghan men. A group of Afghans and other single men had come into into Bulgaria in the middle of the night, and there was an altercation. And there was one dead. And the man had died. A man had been shot dead. Uh, so I started calling colleagues, waking them up in the middle of the night, waking up partners who were present in the border area, trying to find out more, trying to get more news reports, calling contacts in the middle of the night, trying to, to find out whether that was the case. And the first news w- that was that was coming back is, yes, indeed, a, a group of people, we don't know how many, we don't know who they were, uh, had come across the border and they were stopped further inland by a patrol, by a border guard patrol. And they were instructed to to stop. The initial reports from from the police were coming out as well that that uh, they did not stop immediately. So one of the border guards produced a warning shot, which then ricocheted into the back of the neck of an Afghan man, and he he dropped dead instantly. I spoke immediately. I I woke him up as well to our. Uh, the head of our operation, our representative, I said that we need to respond to these growing media calls. By that time, I had a, a long list of media that wanted to know what had happened. And we came up with what UNHCR would say in any case in this situation. And it was, in fact, it was the first time in the European uh, refugee crisis when uh, someone had been had been shot at the border. So what we said was, what I said and what I, I ended up saying on behalf of the organization, something that I to to this day that I believe was the right thing to say, that we deplore the the death of an Afghan asylum seeker in uh, at the border between Turkey and Bulgaria on Bulgarian territory, that we're deeply shocked by the incident and that we call for a uh, transparent and quick investigation by the authorities and that seeking asylum is not a crime, it's a fundamental human right. Those were the four things that I said. I I said them to AFP, I said them to Reuters, I said them to The Independent. I had a scheduled morning program at 7 a.m. to speak about other things related to integration I went into the TV studio. Obviously, there was only one topic to cover. I I said the same there in the studio. And and then I started to get phone calls from public radio, from uh, requests for interviews. I had no idea what was happening in parallel. And what was happening was a huge reaction against, initially I thought against UNHCR, but no, it was against me. And there was a campaign from, I, I believe it was part of the far, far right that started it, but it very quickly uh, seeped into the mainstream of hundreds initially, but then thousands of people on social media first 
who were uh, saying, who is this guy who's defending the Afghan man? It's our border guard that needs defending. Uh, he's a traitor. He's a paid traitor. He's not a Bulgarian. He's an anti-Bulgarian. He has to give up his passport. He's not a citizen. He has to rescind his citizenship. Politicians started to uh, to talk about the incident immediately. And I'm calling you by name also. The politicians were, were very careful not to call me out by name, uh, although there was one case where, where I was called out by name. Uh, there was a, a popular historian who associated with the, the, the right who started a petition for my citizenship to be rescinded. And I started to get calls, dozens of calls on my phone, on my mobile phone. Uh, UNHCR spokespeople, we list our phones publicly. It's very easy to find us. Um, hundreds of emails, Facebook messages, people call, uh, the, one of the calls that I remember well was from a Canadian number. One of the first calls I took after that, I switched off my phone. I, I didn't expect it to be a Bulgarian. It was someone speaking, speaking Bulgarian. I don't know whether it was a Bulgarian living in Canada or just they were rerouting the, the call so it wouldn't be tracked. And uh, he said, only, only you are a disgrace, but you will also die. And I am sending a pistol and a cartridge full of bullets to the border guard so he can personally kill you. There were others. There were but this many. was the one that affected you the most? It, it was one that I, that I remember because it was so explicit that, uh, you know... It was a death threat. There were, there were others who were saying, no, we're coming to kill you, we're, uh, we're organizing, you will not find safe, uh, a safe place in this country. There were others that just wishful thinking, uh, you will get cancer and die tomorrow, uh, your family is cursed, we will find you, we will uh, make you disappear, um, that uh, I would be soon uh, having acid thrown in my face. And, uh, yeah. It must have been absolutely frightening. I, I, yes, it was. Um, I, I think I was a bit paralyzed and I shut down a little bit. I didn't know exactly how to react. I had grown accustomed to you know, the, the, the small level of hate mail and, you know, the trolls on, on the internet. Uh, it was something quite common, and I was used to it. So I, I didn't think much of the fact that people were reacting. What I didn't anticipate, and, and I was taken, I was completely surprised and shocked, was the extent and, and the fact that it was so meticulously organized. It's as if somebody turned on a switch button and all of a sudden a thousand people directly target you. And, uh, our office in in Sofia was also receiving calls and emails, and it took me a while to figure out that yes, it was also an attack on UNHCR because I was representing UNHCR, but it was so personalized. They were 
they were targeting me. And people on the people on the street whom I knew, you know, getting on the tram that same night, I went home by tram. Uh, it was the the usual way that I go home, and some and people were looking at me. My landlord called me to tell me that he was very polite. Uh, he told me, you know what you said today. You're not you're not right. You, you should not say these things. I went home. Uh, I, I I switched off my phone. Uh, I deleted, uh, took my Facebook account offline. Uh, deleted all the messages that I'd received. I didn't want to speak to anyone. I didn't want to speak to my parents. The next day, uh, I started to get messages of support from from UNHCR colleagues. Uh, the news had traveled to to headquarters and to the Bureau of Europe uh, that there was a situation in Bulgaria, and I started to receive uh, letters of emails emails of support initially. And how did that make you feel? Did that help you? I I didn't I didn't realize it. I mean, I thought, okay, yes, that's. It's nice of you to say, uh, but what now? What what? Were you uh, scared? What, what what am I supposed to do? I didn't realize. I didn't get the full extent of what was happening until the the death of the Afghan man was on Thursday night. So everything transpired on a Friday, and on Sunday, Sunday afternoon, I received a call from one of our Geneva-based spokespeople, uh, William Spindler. William called me, and he, at that time, his, he was covering Europe, and uh, he said, how are you? We're all very worried. And that's when I realized that it was actually a very serious situation. I was uh, in my dining room, sitting at the table, and I broke down. I can imagine I can see I mean it, it, this is something I wish I mean if you could if the people who did this could see how it affects you even to this day I mean it's just really I don't think about it at all but it's obviously it obviously deeply affected you <clears throat> you take your time. It it, com- it completely changed my life. Uh, for uh, I'd say that I've I've come to appreciate the the fact that it changed my life because it gave me. First of all, it opened up experiences that I never thought I would uh, I would have, but also it made me consider far more deeply and uh, and carefully who I was, what my purpose in life is, and uh, and what's important. Uh, it's important to be true to your values. So you didn't regret having stood up for that Afghan man who lost his life in the border that day? No, no. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that... Uh, that then that caused the backlash, but uh, 
I believe that we have to stand up whenever we feel that something is not right. It changed you because at that point you realized that this is what your purpose was to do, even though you had done it automatically. You weren't thinking about, I'm standing up. I was. You were just doing your job. I think initially I uh, I was thinking more. Okay, now I need I need to get some distance between myself and the situation. I'm not going to throw myself into activism all of a sudden. But uh, I knew that you can be targeted. You can be attacked. And it's not just a matter of defending yourself. It's defending what you believe in. And I believe that people have a right to be helped. If you could sit down like you and I are sitting down right now with one of those haters uh, who instigated that personalized hate campaign against you, what would you say to them and what questions would you ask? I would explain how that is... I would tell them that this is what you've caused just by saying the words that you've said. That it caused you to have to leave the country, leave your your teenage daughter behind? A teenage daughter with whom I I was building up a relationship because we'd never lived together. And uh, we, we had started to become quite fond of each other and spend more time and spend more weekends. And uh, and then I had to to tell her that uh, I'm sorry, but I have to go away. And I don't think that uh, I think she understood. I think she was also disappointed. But also my family, my my parents. Uh, okay, I I, be- I believe that they're still young, but they're they're retired and. I'd love to spend more time with them. I'd love to m- learn more about them. I, f- I feel that it's been such a uh, a wild ride up till now that uh, I haven't had time to spend moments, hours, days with my family and, and having frank conversations. Because it, it, was, it became quite clear that the enormity of the attacks, uh, uh, you know, the hatred towards you, the personalized campaign your life was in danger if you stayed in Bulgaria and you had to leave. And uh, UNHCR arranged an opportunity for you and, and you took it. I'm very grateful that UNHCR was very quick to react. I, I got a message of support from the High Commissioner, who at the time was Antonio Guterres, who is now, of course, the Secretary General. He, he wrote to me and he said, uh, you have my full support and solidarity and uh, don't feel bad for doing the right thing and soon there, thereafter I uh, I found out that there was a plan for me well first of all I couldn't do media work anymore because that exposed me I'm not sure if I you know keeping a low profile and staying out of the media whether my life would have been in danger I don't I don't now I don't believe that uh, that somebody would have actually come to kill me if I had stopped my media work. But at the time, what were you feeling? I mean, I, I how felt, did, what, what was your reaction to all of this? I felt that there was a physical, uh, there, there was a physical threat. I really, I had, uh, I stopped sleeping. Uh, my car was vandalized. Not seriously, but uh, it was scratched and somebody put a heap of garbage on my hood 
so it, there was there was a proximity from which I knew that I had to get away. So I was very grateful when there was an opportunity for me to leave Bulgaria. And this is at a time when Europe was burning with the refugee crisis that uh, every single day thousands of people were moving through so many countries. The idea came, I I think it was Adrian Edwards, who heads our media team in, in UNHCR, who said, well, actually, we need somebody in Greece on the island of Lesbos. So this is this is kind of typical of UNHCR, take you out of a very uh, extremely difficult situation on one hand and put you into a, probably the most extreme situation on the other hand um, <laughs> that uh, the world was faced. Lesbos was the island where virtually all the refugees were coming and arriving in. But I just want to ask you one more question before we move on to Greece. What has this experience taught you about human nature? I mean, when you think about what motivated the people uh, behind this campaign. I think that uh, the, the the main lesson that I've learned is that we're all afraid of what we don't know. Because I'm sure that and many of the people who, who are close to me, friends and, and family and relatives uh, with whom I've spoken to, uh, afterwards, who have no intention of harming me, but they don't agree with the position that UNHCR and, 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 and I had taken on behalf of UNHCR, uh, they don't know. It's only when they meet somebody who's affected, when they meet Nur, who had to keep his hands over his eight-year-old son's ears because his mother was being violated in the next room. When they see that we're talking about completely ordinary human beings with ordinary lives, teachers, engineers, students, bakers, farmers, who have never, ever wanted to do anything else then lead their lives, that their kids have good grades, that uh, maybe they get a raise, that uh, this year's harvest is better. It's when you understand that we're talking about completely ordinary people, that's when you start to understand why we need to be far more open and that there is no place for xenophobia, not in the 21st century, that there is no space for this type of rhetoric of us and them. What do you mean us and them? The, some of the scholars whom I've had the, the great fortune to meet and artists coming out of Syria, coming from Afghanistan, the poets, these people I would have never had the opportunity to meet in most of the places where I've lived. You met them as they were fleeing for their lives, uh, just off the boat, arriving in Lesbos. The only reason why I met them is because I work with UNHCR and because I was there when they were coming through on the shores of Lesbos. It completely took my mind off Bulgaria. I think the next time that I actually thought about Bulgaria, definitely the... The next time that I messaged my parents was probably a month later. 
When I got to Lesbos, it was a few days after the worst shipwreck in, in Greek waters to this day. I flew in early in the morning on the first flight, and as the, the plane was making its approach, I started to see the outline of the, of the island, and then an orange halo around it. The closer that, that we got, and I had a window seat on, on the left of the plane, and, and I could see that the outline of the island was day-glow orange, fluorescent orange from all the life vests. I had received a briefing. I knew that I was going into a very difficult situation, but I, I was completely unprepared. Um, I, I only figured it out when I got down to the level of the shore that there is no sand or there are no rocks. It's just a carpet of vests and, and, and discarded boats. It was from thousands upon thousands of people that were coming every single day. Just in October of 2015, there were 135,000 people coming in. It's, it's not the number that is important. It's the fact that this location, just a few kilometers from Turkey, was every single day, like Groundhog's Day, because you begin very early in the morning, maybe four or five, with boats coming in one after the other, sometimes 200 a day, uh, every single boat with 50 people on it. And then in the evening, the same number of people are off on the ferries. And the very next day, you do it all again. And sometimes it's in good weather and people arrive and they're happy. But then other times it's in terrible weather, in rough seas, and they still come through, and they're confused. They collapse when they step onto the shore, and you try to help them off. So you were there, you know, in the mornings where people were coming in uh, in terrible conditions. And um, is there one in particular that you can't get out of your head? There is. I remember a girl that she could have been maybe at most 10 years old. Um, she came with a family in very difficult conditions, and when we helped them off the boat, she just stood perfectly still, staring out into nothing, into the sea, wearing a purple jacket and matching dress, and she had on her lapel a blue cloth flower. And she stood there with the emptiest gaze that I'd ever seen, the only movement was her jaw, which was trembling, and she was obviously uh, hypothermic. I was trying to get a blanket onto her, but it kept slipping off her shoulders. I tried again and again and again, but it, it, it didn't stay. I had to wrap her around while we waited for the bus to come through. She there was soaked from the boat ride. They were all soaked. Every single one of the people that came through was completely soaked. The whole of that winter, on every boat, we had... 50 people at least, sometimes it was 88 on a boat, uh, not much larger than an average dining table, stacked like sardines one on top of the other. Their legs had gone numb because they'd spend three, sometimes five hours on high seas 
in in very difficult conditions the water the waves splashing from from all sides so yes we had hypothermia almost on every boat so you were in Lesbos for eight months. How has that experience changed you? It has changed me completely. Uh, I, I'm not the same person I was when I left Bulgaria. That experience, that all-consuming experience, has left the deepest imprint on me from any, anything else in my life. Uh, because on Lesbos, and not just because of the people whom I've met, not just because of our team, which is an exceptional group of people, and especially our local colleagues who would sacrifice their life for months at the, at the very peak of exhaustion and still going and then helping people every single day. Incredible. But also because it's there that you understand that life continues. And yes, the journey is very arduous. It is complete desperation when you see the faces of those people coming off, who many of them have never been close to the sea or to any type of water. Many of them can't swim. They have these same orange life vests that are full with, with cotton or stereofoam that will not keep them afloat. And they know that full well. They know the the, the dangers that that they uh, that they will find. Yeah, you understand that life goes on for them. That within a few hours, maybe a couple of days, they'll be okay and they'll be on their way. Life goes on for the locals. Lesbos is a, it's a duality of sort because you see this full spectrum of human emotions from the most sincere form of joy for those that come over to complete desperation in those days where, where we, we had people that drowned or, or died of hypothermia. But then you can go to a tavern if you have the time. You can enjoy some of the greatest food that you'll ever have. You can see this amazing island to go and experience the olive oil of Lesbos, to talk to the people of Lesbos who are deeply intellectual. And you understand that there's far more than, than posturing and politics and life continues. What did you learn about, I mean, you had just come from this situation in Bulgaria where you were seeing, you know, kind of the worst of human nature. Did you see some of the best of human nature when you were in Lesbos. I absolutely did. I absolutely did. I saw it every day because everyone who had gone, you know, this is an island which, it's, it's a large island. Uh, it has a, a population of, what, 90,000 people, so it, uh, it's, it's not small. But there were thousands of people that had gone specifically to help refugees, and the locals were there day after day on the shores, giving tea, giving blankets, helping people through, pulling them out of the water, sometimes half alive, sometimes not alive. And, and this continues to, to this day. Yes, there's more frustration now. I, I still work on, on Greece. I'm now in Athens, no longer on Lesbos. 
but uh, I, I, I do travel sometimes and I can see the frustration that they want their island back. They want this to now go away. Finally, they feel that they've done what they could, but they still help and they still believe that refugees have to be helped. You, um, you know, as part of your job, uh, Ai Weiwei, the great artist, uh, was, uh, has now come out, his amazing film called Human Flow. And part of it was filmed on Lesvos, and, and you were involved in um, facilitating that. Can you describe what it was like working with Ai Weiwei? I met Ai Weiwei on, on New Year's Day 2016. It was after a, a couple of days of no arrivals. The weather was just too bad. He didn't stop filming me for one second. And he asked me about UNHCR and what was happening on Lesbos and uh, what was UNHCR doing elsewhere. And, and we started to build a level of trust. He kept reaching out to me and asking me how are things on Lesbos. It was only later on when I was preparing to leave Lesbos and it was at that time that Weiwei says, uh, well, you know, I, by that time I knew that he was working on a documentary. Uh, he, he's got 1,000 hours of footage uh, from 23 countries, and there are about 500 interviews with experts and helpers and refugees, and he'd really love it if you take a look at a few of them. So I said, of course, yeah, I'd be honored to do that. I went to his studio in Berlin. Um, it was there that uh, I started watching the, the, the interviews and giving comments and, and giving feedback. I came back to UNHCR, came back to Greece, in fact, going to Athens. And then one day he called me and said, oh, the film's done, um, and, uh, and you're going to receive a writer's credit. Said, well, Aww. thank you very much. I don't know why. I mean... Uh, a thank you from you it would have sufficed, but uh, he said, no, I, I believe that uh, you, you deserve to be credited. And so. you also appeared in the film. And uh, two of the interviews that we had from, from several interviews that he did with me. Uh, uh, yeah, were, How did it feel to, that people in theaters all over the world were seeing you, among other people, uh, appear in this amazing film? Well, I'm very, I'm very proud to be associated with this incredible film. I think it's a very important film from for our era, and I, I appreciate. Uh, yeah, and he made this film using his artistic power to counter the ugliness that you experience personally um, in Bulgaria, that and that has spread all over Europe. Um, it's in, you know, we see it in in the U.S. as well. How does this current political debate and the instrumentalization of refugees in order to win elections, how does that make you feel? Well, I have a teenage daughter who now understands full well that uh, the world is not a rosy place. I also have a two-year-old daughter uh, who, and I, and I worry, I worry because I, I see what the trend is. Uh, it was Bulgaria more than three years ago for me, but I see that same rhetoric again and again in countries where, which were the, be which are, they are, they're not were. It's, it, it's not past tense. It's still the case. Europe, the industrialized world, the US, these are beacons of core human values, the principles of human rights, and they will, they will persevere and they will triumph. Uh, our current trend of 
xenophobic and anti-refugee mm. rhetoric. Have you been back to Bulgaria since? Yes. Describe yes. that experience just briefly. I uh, I went back for for a few days. So those were the only days that I took while I was on Lesbos in May of 2016. I didn't want to go, but I also wanted to see my family. I was quite worried that when I when I went back, something would happen. I didn't know what. Uh, nothing happened. People had forgotten. They'd moved on. And I wasn't in the news. I mean, yes, sometimes broadcasts were coming in from Lesbos and, and I was uh, making a statement on something that had happened that day. But people no longer associated me with refugees in Bulgaria. I think that I was relieved that I could go back. Uh, and I've been back a few times since. And it's my my country. I, I've spent many years away from it, but it's still where I come from. In the middle of all of this, uh, you managed to remarry and have a little girl? I'm very fortunate to say that uh, the love of my life, the only respite I had on Lesbos, I called her every night. And sometimes she, she'd wait up for me, and other times I'd wake her up. I'd never tell her what was happening. I'd never describe what I was seeing or what I was experiencing or how it was affecting me. But uh, I think it made our love much stronger. And uh, I'm very happy. Sharing with her this uh, she profound knew. experience that you were going through. She, she was with me throughout this time. Uh, she moved from Bulgaria to be with you. She's moved from Bulgaria to be with me. She's, uh, she's an artist. She has, uh, has moved with me. And I'm very grateful for that decision. And I'm very grateful for her being not just my wife, but also the mother of our daughter. Okay. Well, other than uh, your 22-month-old little girl, Leia, baby, what keeps you awake at night these days? She definitely keeps me awake. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> I think the, the concern that I'm not doing enough and at the same time I'm doing enough not to be with the people I love as much as I should and it's this journey that I'm still on of trying to find out exactly who I am and what my purpose is and that still keeps me up but it's mostly my closer. daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Boris, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and also opening up your heart to us in this podcast. Thank you very much, Melissa. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Awake at Night. To find out more about the series and see Boris at work in the field, do visit unhcr.org slash awake at night. You can find us on Facebook at UNHCR and on Twitter, we're at refugees and I'm at Melissa R. Fleming. You can follow Boris on at Cheshirkov and please spread the word about the series using the hashtag awake at night. 
If you were inspired and moved by this episode, do subscribe to Awake at Night, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could, could you take time to review the podcast? It would help us spread the word and get more attention to the people who serve humanity. Thanks to the fantastic design and studio teams here at UNHCR and to my producers, Bethany Bell and Laura Sheeter of Chalk and Blade. The sound design was by Pascal Wise, and the original music for this podcast was written and performed by Nadine Shaw and produced by Ben Hillier. <laughs>